This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hello, I'm Terrence. We're going to talk about Day Million by Frederick Pohl. I think the way this came up was Marissa said she was going to go do a panel on the new wave and didn't know anything about the new wave. <laughs> no, I said I'm reading. Like, oh, okay. Well, I love, I love I, the new wave stuff, but I'm trying to like, uh, yeah, read as much as I can, but I don't even know if that panel is going to happen anymore. Okay. Well, I don't know anything about the new wave. I, I, I still, I still, I mean, I read tons of the stuff that supposedly is in it, but I don't, uh, somehow it gets stuck in my craw. I don't know oh, why. I, I thought you would have loved that stuff. That's weird. I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm really sort of against movements like cyberpunk. I, I just really like, uh, that one William Gibson book, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm sure when there's some, a steampunk is not really a movement genre like that, isn't it? It's just a, I think it's just a visual aesthetic. Well, I feel like there's a difference between when they, like steampunk is just kind of like a description for stuff people are writing, right? Whereas the new wave, they kind of described it that as it was happening, you know, like they're like, let's start a movement. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I like I'm re I, I've read the I think I was reading it yesterday the Wikipedia entry for the new wave, and like I it says one in one way that that um H L Gold started it with Galaxy and I can see that sorta because he's he is responding to astounding and um and uh, Campbell. Uh, and he's saying, not that. <laughs> um, he's going into softer, I guess New Wave is supposed to be softer SF or something like that. Um, but, like, Philip K. Dick, a lot of people, I think he's mentioned there. But I don't think Philip K. Dick was ever, like, saying, I'm a New Wave writer and I'm going to write some New Wave stuff now. I think. Yeah, what, I feel like he was doing it way before they put that name on it. Right. Like, and he. Yeah, and so, uh, somebody said Alfred. Everything Alfred Bester wrote was New Wave. I'm like, okay, but I think you're. I think it's like the label science fiction or fantasy. It, it's kind of tricky, right? Labels. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, so like if if there was an anthology called The New Wave, right? Um, I guess. I I can see it as a reaction, but I don't I'm not good. However, when I think of New Wave, I always think of this story. And I think that's why I suggested it. So mm-hmm. Terrence, had you read this before? Yes, um I read it a, a few years ago. I don't remember if I read it um uh, before that, but I was quite impressed by by it when I read it a few years ago. It's a very impressive story. I mean it's it's also really casual, which I think is fun. Um, and uh, in fact, probably the way it's written is the most new wave thing about it because you can't really tell this story unless you write it that way. Otherwise it wouldn't be this length or anything close to it. And actually the plot is pathetic, <laughs> right? So it's all about the way it's written and, and dropping but he actually those... says that as well. He exactly. Says, it's so meta, right? With that. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, so the version I sent you guys um, in text is from a magazine called SF Impulse, which is, I think, it's more of a paperback than... Um, uh, yeah, it's more... Yeah, it's 100 pages. So I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a paperback. I, I had the scan rather than uh, the this, original. This version is mathematically wrong. In what way? At the beginning, it says... Uh, and later on, that d- takes place ten thousand years from now. Yeah, I think it says other- about ten thousand. Yes, yeah, but yeah. other versions say one thousand years. Mm. And a quick calculation shows that it must be the year, uh, roughly the year three thousand. So yeah. it's more. Uh, it's much closer to a thousand years in the future than to ten thousand. The important part is he's only really describing 2019. <laughs> because... Or 1966. Exactly. He met a girl and, and, and took a phone number. <laughs> um, uh, this is not the first publication. As you note on the, the um, third page at the bottom, it says, uh, copyright 1966 by Rogue Magazine. And if you guys don't know what Rogue is, I will be happy to tell you because it explains a hell of a lot about this story. It's a sub-Playboy. It is a sub-Playboy, right? Um, It is a competitor for Playboy. And so all the meta stuff in here makes way more sense if you're not a science fiction reader, um, if you're just a guy who likes boobs and... Yes, it's uh, full of sex. It's obsessed with sex all, all the it, way through. It, it, the whole thing is about sex, right? That's why the plot doesn't make any sense um, in terms of like a science fiction story. Um, the plot is all about delivering the ideas. It's, it's like a, a direct injection of ideas into a guy who's <laughs> how, how's it described? He's got a little red convertible. He's smoking charbroiled, uh, smoking charbroiled. Uh, <laughs> he's really drunk there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's, uh, uh, he's, he's looking for a hot, hot, uh, babes. And oh, the third paragraph starts. How angrily you recoil from the page. You say, who the hell wants to read about a pair of queers? Calm yourself. <laughs> I feel like the sad thing is when he was writing that, that, that was like, the way the future was going. And then right now it seems to be, we're in a little bit of a dip where it's going backwards a little bit again. Like there actually will be people who would read this now and be like, he'd be speaking to them. Still, well, That's what's so funny, right? Is, is to me, uh, there was a couple of years ago, I did a podcast about a modern book and it was, Oh, it's so innovative. It's got, it's got a uh, transgender folks with, uh, uh, pronouns that aren't male or female. I'm like, yeah, Frederick Pohl wrote that story, you know, ages ago. I read it in 1980 something and I was like, wow, amazing. And then, yeah. <laughs> and That's I thought it was, I thought it was 1970, stuff. right? I thought it was 1970. Yeah. It was published. No, it was 1966. So the fact that, mm-hmm. um, this guy who was born a hundred years ago, um, Frederick Pohl was born in 1919, right? Wrote a story in 1966 that basically sums up all of the, uh, issues we won't care about that people are all up in arms about, uh, today because they're just getting used to the idea. Um, yeah, they're yeah. just, they're just going to get, it's kind of depressing. Do you feel like it's, sorry, it. I saw your, um, 
your review mm-hmm. on, on your website that you wrote in 2012 and you were like, this is what makes it feel old and dated that he's speaking to this kind of like dude bro that's <laughs> dude bro, whiskey yeah. and being like, oh, yeah, like oh, gayness offends me kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I feel like in 2012 that would have felt more dated than it even feels now. Like I feel like people are sort of the dude bros are back, you know. I think I think a lot of that is fake. I think um I mean there are there are people who are highly influenced by the dude dude bro phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. But uh you know if you if you go to YouTube and you just click around uh you're going to find all sorts of people who are broadcasting sort of anti-gay sentiment um, in so, some certain respect and are, are openly gay, right? We're, we're totally past that. This is like, the idea is like, in the 60s, you can sort of justify the idea, if we can only get a woman into office, then everything will be fine because women are all about peace and household harmony, except they wouldn't say household, right? Um, and then we get Margaret Thatcher for <laughs> 10 years. Um, and we get, uh, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton. We get all sorts of, and when we realize, yeah, it, look, uh, Dick Cheney's daughter is not a good person just because she's gay, right? <laughs> just because, because, uh, some Republicans are now cool with people being gay doesn't mean, um, that their policies are somehow better. Um, so all mm-hmm. that, all, like the fact that, uh, this this dude who's reading a um uh girly magazine with some articles and fiction and stuff in it um is the target audience i think like even if you read the set like uh if you read interviews with like arnold schwarzenegger in playboy in i don't know 1981 or whatever he's not even all that afraid of gays and all that stuff he's got gay friends cuz he lives in you know, Venice or you know, mm-hmm. Muscle Beach or whatever. So, I guess what I'm saying is like that. Uh, I think it was that audience was kind of like falling out of fashion. I guess I'm just saying it's that group is very kind of trending right now. <laughs> it's it, it is totally a phenomenon, right? It yeah. is it is absolutely a phenomenon. But uh, I think it's it, it's. Uh, it's like the last hurrah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I think it's it's fun though. It's fun to read a story where the narrator is talking to you like that. Like well, yeah. <laughs> like just like criticizing you and you know, you disgusting oh, dumb. It totally small. gets past the defenses, right? <laughs> yeah. Because he he's uh, he's every time there's an objection and uh, and even the way the way I mean, the way it starts is so weird. On this day, I want to tell you about, right? Well, why doesn't mm-hmm. he just start telling us about it? Uh, which will be about 10,000 years from now. There will be, there were a boy, a girl, and a love story. Now, although I haven't said so much, <laughs> said much so far, none of it is true. <laughs> he's, he's, every time he, uh, puts something out there, he undercuts it, right? And he says, the boy's not a boy because he's 187 years old, which is an interesting number. And the girl was not a girl for other reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I said, oh, she must be a woman. Okay. Then, And the love story did not entail the sublimation of the urge to rape and the concurrent postponement of the instinct to submit. 
which we are at present understanding such matters. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. Some psychology going on in the mid-60s there. You won't care much for this story if you don't grasp these facts at once. Uh, and I don't grasp those facts, but I do but it, it, It's a, a pedagogical lesson in what science fiction. Yes, exactly. Exactly. If, if, however, you will make the effort, you will likely find it jam-packed, chock-full, and tip-top crammed with laughter, tears, and poignant sentiment. And I don't find that I have that reaction at all. Yeah, I this uh, when I was re-listening to it, that line stuck out to me as well. And it sounds kind of like sarcastic and like full of cliches, you know? He's kind yeah, of it like, is. Well, it, it sounds like you're not supposed to find it like that at all. Yes, because he's beginning day million with a hyperbole. Yep. It's sort of just before the singularity, and then all the way through he's trying to be in a hyperbolic uh, future and then relate it to present-day concerns. But at the mm-hmm. same time as he relates it to present-day concerns, he makes the present-day concerns or demands um, look like um, – silly requirements that will be long since um, uh, left behind. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think the end, which I, uh, this is actually why I think it's very close to, uh, uh, there is a, another post, I don't know if you saw this, um, I, I posted about when um, Spider Robinson did a podcast on this story. Um, ah, no. Oh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I, Probably could have sent more links. Uh, I didn't. I was just doing a search this morning and I spotted it. Um, Ah. I'll just read that. It's from uh, 2008. Um, Spider Robinson has some amazing content on his podcast this month. Disappointed at the number of short stories available in audio from Spider Robinson. Uh, Spider Robinson has a plan to solve this. He sought out and received permission to read some of his favorite SF stories. Stories from some of the most influential SF writers of all time. The first is uh, what Spider Robinson describes as, quote, what very, mel- very well may be the ultimate science fiction short story. And I say, he ain't just blowing smoke. It's Frederick mm. Pohl's Day Million. The ultimate science fiction short story. I think there are, there's a lot of competition for that. But this one has something that edges out a lot of the competitors like i have a lot of science fiction short stories i think are amazing um and i think a lot of them are maybe more interesting but this one is an introduction to science fiction in a way that other ones yeah. aren't and because oh go for it that, uh, i think that's really true because when i first read this um mm-hmm. i read it like years ago in Robert Silverberg's oh, yeah. Science Fiction 101. And I think when I read it, it didn't really hit me. I didn't really like think much of it because I it's not like super engaging and interesting as a story. No, it's a terrible story. Um, <laughs> yeah, but then when I read his comments on it, then I went back and read it and I was like, oh, I can see like what it's doing on this other mm-hmm. level now. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's the ending that really punctuates the point of this story. Um, I'm just going to read that. It's the last paragraph on page nine. Rats, you say, it looks crazy to me. And you, 
with your aftershave lotion and your little red car pushing papers across a desk all day and chasing tail all night. Tell me, just how the hell do you think you would look to Tiglath Pileser, say, or Attila the Hun? And boom, he just dropped the mic and walked <laughs> away saying, I just showed you what science fiction is, yo. Which is, <laughs> like, think about that for a second. There's this guy who reads magazines. He adds ice to his uh, whiskey that's imported from across. Uh, well, Grunty. Yeah. Um, he's, he shaves every day because that's the fashion, right? Today we're back in the, you know, in the 60s. Mustache was like unusual, right? Now everybody's all beardy. And if you don't have a beard, girls don't like you. <laughs> um, um, so you've got, you've got, uh, this guy whose job is not, you know, to ride horses and, uh, attack, uh, and subdue cities, but rather, you know, to sit behind a desk. And that's what a man does, right? And he drives a little red sports car and he, he, barbecue steaks in the backyard and uh he yeah, chases tail at at the bar at night that is fucking weird and the only reason it doesn't seem weird is because you're you're rolling in it right and and mm -hmm. the fact that if you set it a thousand or ten thousand years in the future um and all this uh i mean some of it's preposterous right but other stuff is not so preposterous, right? The, the transgender stuff is just like, that's the most normal stuff now there is. Yeah. And, and yet there's VR stuff in there kind of, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I don't know, personality copying or what, whatever it is. And, uh, prosthetics. He gets a whole thing on prosthetics in here, right? Like hearing aids and, and, um, and, uh, you know, yeah, like cavities. Yeah, you get your cavities filled. The dentist, you think all that's the rude parts are uh, removed. That's right. Yeah, and organs. Mm -hmm. But do you know what, though? When I was reading it this time, I was, I kept on thinking, oh, it's like a kind of new wave retelling of Scanners Live in Vain. Like, I was Absolutely. really getting a yeah, Scanners a Live in Vain vibe. Yep. And then, um, but then I did like a little bit of research and I found out I never realized that Frederick Pohl is the guy that basically fell in love with Corbina Smith and ah. like republished his stories and like pushed Makes him sense. into science fiction. So he discovered Corbina Smith, cool. uh -huh. fell in love. And then, uh, yeah, I think this is kind of like a bit of a inspired short story. Uh, absolutely. Pohl is, um, you know, when we think of, if we stack up all the science fiction writers who are famous, you know, in the 80s, I, I guess we'd go Isaac Asimov and uh, Heinlein, Clark, right? Those are the big three. Mm -hmm. And then he would maybe go on and he'd say Silverberg and uh, maybe go retro and he'd say Bester, right? And eventually you would get to Paul. But you might get to Paul Anderson before you get to Paul. But the thing is, is Frederick Paul was there the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. He started super early. He was in, in, he, he started a whole movement that is sort of, um, it's the opposite of Campbell's, right? Campbell's got this, uh, aesthetic that he's going for. And Paul's more like, um, he's there in the background and he's writing and editing magazines and he isn't, um, as, definitive because i guess 
he didn't do the moon landing in the or you know he didn't he didn't do but he's he's been there in the in the background and he, and with Cyril Cornbluth he wrote the Space Merchants, which is to me one of the most important stories because it tells us exactly how things are now, back when they were just like that in the fifties, right? Mm-hmm. Was uh, the senator from Coca Cola? Please stand and give us your vote. <laughs> The senator from Procter and Gamble, please stand and give us your vote, right? And and people sleeping on the stairs and thinking that's normal, right? It's it's basically a book for millennials <laughs> because it describes in, in a satirical way the exact situation people find themselves in this terrible uh, near death of capitalism. Uh, you you uh, you called it a singularity. Or near singularity story? Yes, they 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 just um, we're still just capable of understanding their motivations. Mm-hmm. Although in fact it's very different from um, human motivations, and that's the whole point. But um, I wanted to read also a, a little quote um, uh, where he's talking about um, Don and his voyages, mm-hmm. and he says um, in the course of his voyages. Don had circled Proxima Centauri, Procyon, Procyon, and the the puzzling worlds of Muraceti. Mm -hmm. He had carried agricultural templates to the planets of Canopus and brought back warm, witty pets from the pale companion of Aldebaran. Blue, hot, or red, cool, he had seen a thousand stars and their ten thousand planets. He had, in fact, been traveling the star lanes with only brief leaves on earth for pushing two centuries but you don't care about that either it's people <laughs> that make stories not the circumstances when in fact uh that's all anyone who likes science fiction does care about <laughs> the the boy meets girl and they fall in love is his way of sort of seeming to make a concession and saying well i'll make it relevant because many people um as well say science fiction has no real characters or character de- development and um they just uh f- they're just full of um circumstances and by seeming to count out to that he's he's saying that it's the circumstances that are um i think he's mocking important. i think he's yes. mocking right he's mocking it's, yes it's, he's mocking it's, the reader it's double meta reverse irony <laughs> yes definitely and that's why whenever he says something, he's lying to you, right? <laughs> yes. He says, I want to tell you a story about a boy and a girl, but the boy's not a boy and the girl's not a girl. <laughs> and then, um, you, you, you think I'm crazy. No, don't, don't. Uh, this story's great. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it's, it's terrible because it is, it's, it's a, it's a love story, just like he promises, but it doesn't that's deliver. That's boring. Yes. <laughs> Well, but, but it doesn't deliver what the reader wants, and yet it gets past all your defenses and says, oh, my God, he's right, right? That's why, like, yeah, what what is there to get upset about that somebody wants to – or I think the line in here is um, decided, right, to swap genders. There's nothing to get upset about, and if you think there is, then – you don't understand your position. You don't understand your place in the in the global and universal time thing that we experience, right? The the fact that Tiglath Pileser um, lives a very different lifestyle than you and didn't have your religion or your values doesn't mean 
uh, that you're right and he's wrong. <laughs> They're just different. Yeah, I think he says a few times in the story, there's kind of like these sort of offhand comments, and he's like, you might be thinking about this or wondering about it. Mm-hmm. He's like, but they didn't because they didn't care. They wanted to. Like, this was really sad. That's exactly right. And, yeah. And, and, and how, but she's a, Dora's a dancer, right? Um, and the, the audience does, <laughs> the audience doesn't care that she's genetically male, right? And mm-hmm. that makes sense. And I said, well, yeah, but you can't have, you can't make babies with her. Uh, somebody <laughs> might say, right? Well, yeah, but they don't do babies that way anymore, right? Um, yeah. and he said, well, yeah, that's not natural. And then he responds, he responds to every dude bro idea, right? And he mm-hmm. says, is it natural to uh, go to the dentist and have that tooth that was going to rot out of your head filled and repaired? No. What about uh, your hearing loss? Is it natural to to stick a cyborg, cybernetic uh, microphone in your ear and magnify the external sounds or a cochlear implant? Is that any of that natural? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, so fine. I still don't like it. <laughs> he says, you don't have to like it. This is great. We have your two personalities on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is totally like just tearing apart the idea of natural is good mm-hmm. bullshit, which is just one of the worst ideas ever. Anyway. And it's so yeah, short. It's- it does it all in that space of, yeah, seven, eight pages, 15 mm-hmm. minutes. Yeah, so it's the basic lesson. Um, um, everything is different. Everything is change. And that you might nod your head to. And this I'm is nodding what it, it now, yeah. That's it. Get your gut to feel that everything is different and change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the and, thing that offends me is the smell of peanut butter. Like, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> well, so, <laughs> the fact that she's peanut. got a pelt and that she lives under the sea, no problem. Yeah, and that she's like Gills, a, no problem. Yeah, she's a, a like far future. What is she like? Fish lady, cyberpunk dancer. Space yeah, woman, zero I don't G dancer who's capable of deploying more energy than Portugal puts out <laughs> in a year yeah. uh, for a whim. But no, the peanut butter is where I draw the line. Why? What's wrong with the? <laughs> I like peanut butter. What's wrong with the peanut butter? Oh, well, I like to eat it. I just don't like to smell it. That's like I find the smell very offensive. So, <laughs> oh, wow. oh, well, she doesn't sweat in a normal way. So unless you choose her her sweat, um, maybe it's sort of like um, uh, wearing a perfume, um, a different perfume every every day or every week, and she's been through almost everything, Mm -hmm. and she's up to peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) Have you you ever smelled a ferret? Yes, I used to own one. (laughs) Okay, and they uh, they they have a strong smell. Um, yeah, it's a, a musky sort of. What do they smell like? Uh, honey. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. Wouldn't call it honey, but yeah. What's well, that sort of musky honey? Right. It's. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Uh, that's the, that's the idea I was getting. That you know she's, I mean she's got a pelt, so I, she's more like a beaver or like a otter because she lives right. underwater and gills and, gills yeah. and like. Oh, she's like a. Um, Platypus almost. Right. Like and this he's kind of half mammal, half and fish. He's more like the dude in uh in that scanners live in vain. He's 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 cranching all the time, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's got he has to get his legs renewed. 
He's he's had all his his he can't feel anything, right? Uh, but that's okay because only the brain feels. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so he in, in this story, Paul has has assessed his audience. He said, "I'm writing for this market, right? I'm writing for this market, which is non science fiction readers who are think of themselves as sort of the." top tier of the middle class, right? Driving yeah. a fancy sports car, uh, drinking expensive wines. If, if you read those old magazines and look at the uh, ads, they're always like for, uh, an MG Roadster, um, you know, tennis brackets, um, expensive alcohols, right? Smoking cigars and lots of cars, right? And, and, all about that lifestyle, clothing with turtlenecks and, you know, it's, it's, it, it is basically a men's fashion magazine, but they wouldn't call it that then. It was just a man's magazine or a men's magazine. Um, and even the title, Rogue, right? <laughs> a playboy. A, a, if you're a playboy, he gets about, you know, and he's a rogue. Um, you can't trust him, but in a naughty wink, wink, of course you can. He's following all the laws, right? But it, mm-hmm. it, this is a, it's a aspirational lifestyle style magazine and also gives you entertainment and interviews and, and nice pretty pictures of ladies. So it has all. Well, he's a, a rascal, but said in a more highbrow version. Exactly. Uh, well, yes, yeah. but it's a kind of a tame rascal, right? And yes. then this you, is. You little rogue, you. That's right. Um, and, and it, it's, it's, uh, Away, it's not so much a dude bro at that point, right? Because those are sort of more modern phenomena, like with dude, where's my car? And I don't know, yeah. uh, the hangover sort of guys, right? Um, this is more like, um, yeah, these are the hipsters of the, of the, you know, maybe they fought in World War II, but that was a long time ago. Now they're busy cultivating a lifestyle while being employed very well. And, and so he throws this into their midst. And yet, you know, it's not subsequently published in, in, you know, later Playboy issues of Playboy, the best of Rogue. I mean, it might be, but that's not the point. The point is, is it's what you can even pull it out of that context and drop it down into a science fiction magazine like SF Impulse or in the many, many anthologies, including the titular uh, Day Million anthology or a collection, I should say, by Frederick Pohl and in uh, Science Fiction 101 or as I know it, Worlds of Wonder by Robert Silverberg. Um, and it fits perfectly in there, even though it's got this little weird extra thing that explains why it's so weird, right? That it's not for an audience that's familiar with SF. Mm-hmm. And it works so well. It yeah. works so well. I would have loved to. I don't know if they ever like wrote, had like a letter writing thing in those men's magazines, but I would love to see the reaction. Yeah. I to really this. tried to. I tried to dig it up. I've tried. I only have one issue of Rogue. It's really sad. It's the. the it's the, sad that you have one issue. Or yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> no, no. It's a. It's a. It's a good magazine. I have. I think I have every issue of Playboy, and you know, digitally and. There's a ton of great stuff in there, but wow. there are, there's a lot of competitors for Playboy that were, um, not, that were not, you know, just straight, uh, nude women from cover to cover, but were just like Playboy trying to be yeah. that lifestyle magazine, sell ads to, you know, high end, uh, guys. 
and the thinking um, man who likes boobs. Right, right. Yeah. Um, um, by the way, if you look at the cover of SF Impulse, it has an illustration. It doesn't say what it's from, but I, I kind of want to think it's for this story. You guys look at this? Uh, wait, no. On the PDF, you see it? Yeah, on the PDF. That's why I included it, the cover. So it says at the top, Compact SF, three pounds six. <laughs> or no, uh, three pence, or I don't know. It's that three and six, I think, is um, the price. I don't know how to read it because it was back then. Um, Frederick Pohl, Day Million, October 1966, volume one, number eight. So it's got this illustration and. There's what looks like a human female near the horizon. There's two objects in the sky. And then there's something in the foreground. And I wanted to see if you guys are seeing what I'm seeing. Isn't that the hips he talks about? I think it's those Calypgian hips. Yes. Right? And they're childbearing hips, right? That's the whole point of having Calypgian hips. Basically, it means nice ass, right? Um uh, Kalos being like beautiful and Egyptian, I don't know. The back half is like rump. Hmm. So it's like nice, nice hips. But we've got the stars, right? We've got that distant female who we can't quite see. And then we've got these, these bones. Oh, and, and does she have a tail? She has a tail. You're right. Look yes. at that. Yeah. So this is an illustration for that. Huh. Mm. That's confirmation. Nice. Um, it's so yeah, if you're not childbearing, right? You're not literally childbearing. What does it matter that you can't, uh, <laughs> that you can't childbear, right? Mm -hmm. If, if the, if you're, you're, I mean, this is, this is also in Heinlein's, uh, I guess m many of the stories, but pod, pod cane of Mars. Um, her, she has a little brother who's actually older than her, right? Cause he was, he was conceived earlier, but decanted later. <laughs> and the mom is considering decanting another of their children that they conceived when they got married, right? Um, there's, there's a, uh, assumption in SF in the mid, mid 20th century, little past that, I guess, in the 50s, 60s. Um, that we would have uh, some sort of birthing technology. And ev even if you don't read any of this story as being very plausible, which I, I think there's a lot to be questioned. For example, I don't think you can gill people up anytime soon. I don't think maybe 10,000 years from now. I don't think that's happening in the next 500 years. I think that's too... Uh, Genetic manipulation, we're not anywhere close to that yet. That's, that's beyond the singularity for me, right? But if you start looking at it not so much as about, um, any particular technological achievement and just say, well, birth control pills changed things a real fuck ton, right? Early sixties, birth control changed society and changed women's ability to control their reproductive system. And it had profound effects upon uh, society. Everything. Everything, yeah. right? And if you just start thinking of science fiction as a, not about rocket ships going to planets, right? 
I think you will understand it a lot better. And that's why a story like this that lays down a whole bunch of implausible things is still incredibly valuable, even though, um, yeah, I don't think most of it is hard as uh, looking at it as hard as that doesn't make any sense because it's not supposed to be. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is exactly why the new wave science fiction is kind of an interesting yes. shift because it's exactly that. It's exactly like they're like, oh, we could have sex for fun and yes. do other things yes. for fun. And what does it mean when, yeah. when you don't – what does it mean when you don't have to marry the first person you conceive a child with or yeah. that, that sex will mean that, right? And what will it mean in the future? They're all excited about like, mm-hmm. how is this going to go? And What were you going to say, uh I forget. <laughs> oh, sorry, I interrupted. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I a... listened. Instead of concentrating on my own idea, I listened to you. So I forget. <laughs> There's a Silverberg story I did with Paul not that long ago. Um, a novel called uh, Dying Inside. Ah, uh, yes. You know about this book? Yes. It's uh, from 72, 1972. Uh, I think of this as, a, I guess, Silverberg's new wave. Um, I think of this as a new wave story. Um, it's about a guy who has, um, he was born with the ability to basically read people's thoughts. Um, but, uh, now that he's getting older, his ability is waning and becoming unreliable. And so it, it's more like just a midlife crisis book, right? It it isn't about the amazing, profound things will we'll change society when everybody's telepathic, because it's only the one guy, right? Um, and it's more about like let's dwell with this idea. What if what if it's you gain these amazing superpowers, and and then they go away, right? They slowly get weaker and weaker. Wow, this story sounds amazing. It is. It's actually yes, quite it's an really interesting cool. book. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't feel like SF. It feels like mainstream fiction, but it's got this spin, which is okay. Um, so we get this setting, you know, it's like late sixties, early seventies. And there's this dude who, yeah, he had this ability from when he was young to go into people's minds and see what they're experiencing animals too. Um, and what, what is, what would, what effect would that have? And Silverberg's answer is, Basically, well, it would make him not be very interested in having to work for a living because he can just do whatever the wa- he wants, right? He can just read people's bank account numbers right out of their head. He can do anything, right? But if you rely on that like a crutch, then dot, 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 right? And the, so it, it, it's almost like if you were going to tell this story today, um, there's one person who had a cell phone, Right. <laughs> That was connected to the, to the web that we have, but their batteries getting weaker and weaker, right? And everyone else <laughs> in the world doesn't know what this telephone technology is like, right? It doesn't know that you can text message and get, look things up on Google and imagine that situation where you are. In fact, I'm writing a s- story as I speak, right? This is, um, imagine you are that person. You've got this cell phone. This amazing Apple phone or whatever it is, Samsung Galaxy device, and you've had it, and no one else in your universe even knows what you're talking about if you bring it up. But it works perfectly. It's connected to our universe somehow, right? But you don't know how to fix it. (laughs) 
you don't know how to, you know, update the software or solve the, <laughs> so, solve the, the shitty connection that's suddenly appearing. Imagine you had that superpower for 40 years and now it's not working anymore. And yeah. that's science fiction, right? It's, it's saying, okay, taking one little tiny little thing and then flipping it around. Whereas this other story says, uh, the other, the, the poll story says, everything you know that you think is normal, I'm cutting the ground away. So every, anytime you place a step, oh, it's a boy. No, it's not a boy. Oh, it's a girl. No, it's not a girl. Oh, he, she's got great hips. That's great, but she doesn't use them, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they all fall away. All the ground falls out from under you. So, um, I think that a story like Dying Inside can have crossover appeal to a regular audience as well, because it only has that one little thing. Whereas if you were talking about sort of more Buck Rogery style of story that nobody was writing in, in that period of time, except of course, it was translated into the films, right? With Star Wars and all, all of those, uh, phenomena that follows is sort of the lag between the cultural book stuff going into the movies and then popular culture. I feel that same way about this story. Like once you read Day Million in 1985 or whatever it was, you don't need to worry about any of these ideas because they're all old hat. Mm. Yes, that's that's. I like it. Um, I like the definition. I uh, it's like a, a secret scene. I, I like the definition of science fiction as the literature of cognitive estrangement that mm. Darko Suvin said. And this is a, a sort of a, a thought experiment. Okay, you want a estrangement? Let's see how much estrangement I can give you in uh, I don't know uh, five hundred words or a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so short. It is. And you can pack in a lot of estrangers. Yeah. And, and that's why I, I think um, at the beginning, when you read the beginning, mm -hmm. and you said um, that it was uh, not true when you said chock full and tip top crammed yep. with laughter, tears, and poignant sentiment, I think it is, but not what you expect. So you read it and you laughed. Mm -hmm. um, the tears and poignant sentiment, um, I gave um, a copy of this to my wife uh, to to read in the train because she was going on a, mm -hmm. a long train journey. And she doesn't read much science fiction. And she said it made her feel sad ah. because um, just this image of um, these two people who, who met and had some sort of intensity of emotion and then they just got their memories of each other digitally mm -hmm. archived it's like well, when you meet people and you're all you've got left after are the memories mm -hmm. so and i think there's also the poignant sentiment of um in fact they're not really human anymore um yeah they're even if they're on, they're on the cusp of the singularity i don't think they're post-singularity because it's still explainable in in natural what ordinary language or natural language to uh, if you explain it in ordinary language um it leaves um 99% out but you can still do it um and that's the it's a sort of uh die uh, maybe dying earth maybe the cover shows a, a mm. dying earth feeling mm. or the the death of of humanity or the 
the approaching death of humanity. So mm-hmm. there's a, a poignancy. Yeah, they, they the call this post post human stories, right? Uh, this whole phenomenon. There's even people. I think there's like people on the internet who describe. You know, they're really interested in post human stuff. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't get you. <laughs> but um, I yeah, I guess you could read it as uh, sad. But I would say it's the same way that people now. You know, it's those you, you walk into a restaurant and you see a couple texting to each other, right? They're sitting across the table from each other and they're texting back and forth because that's the way they find Oh, my phone's going off. I should have this muted. Message is received from Gary student. Message is sorry, I feel sick today. Oh no. Can we just cancel today's class? Sorry about that. That's just what you were talking about. Exactly. You guys <laughs> no, <Yeah>. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I like that my phone, but yeah, I'm just texting him. Sure. See you next time. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Um, yeah, that was not a, that was not planned, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, I think that there, there is, you could walk into a restaurant and see that as sad. Right. Um, but I think it's almost like what is the singularity if it's not being being unable to understand right so like um if if you're an ant crawling across the Jesse's kitchen floor and Jesse's in you know the next room podcasting you hear sounds there's giant objects looming all around you you don't know what the fuck he's talking about he barely knows what the fuck he's talking about that is the singularity for the ant right but yeah, but but it's still this obsession with number and, and magnitude that which you get with the day million. But it's it's ironic there. Um, there are lots of people we don't understand that are, are living on the world today. They they're just different from us. So mm-hmm. magnitude is one way of indicating uh, a, a difference that's so great that. Um, great in what way? Um, qualitatively great that we have trouble bridging the gap. Mm-hmm. But that's why, unless post singularity means doing magic, um, uh, an ad can't even can't understand a flea. You don't have to compare an ad with a, a human being and a human being with a, a whale to get um, uh, singularities uh, cropping up. Yeah, well, I, I I'm not sure I understand what a singularity is. <laughs> um, I I mean I I know I know what people say, but I guess we're not supposed to be able to understand it. But uh, in mass, a singularity is a point of inflection. It's um uh when the curve suddenly changes direction. So they're sort of talking about it as if it's some amazing thing, because a black hole is a singularity. And uh, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, autonomous artificial intelligence, is a singularity. But you don't need uh, dra- dramatic examples. Um, suddenly, deciding to to give up peanut butter is <laughs> a singularity in your life. <laughs> there's it's a, a bifurcation, in fact. There's a story. Um, I, I, I wish somebody listening to this would decide to record it for LibriVox. I don't know if they would accept it because it's not on Gutenberg yet. I don't know if it would ever be. Uh, maybe it is on Gutenberg. I could be wrong. There's a story called uh, The Men in the Walls. 
and uh, it's by William Tennant. It was published in Galaxy in 1963. So maybe it could be considered a uh, new wave story. I I don't know. I, I really, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that the one we read for today is a new wave story. That Day Million is a new mm-hmm. wave story. Sure. But I'm not a hundred percent sure because I I I I wasn't there at the time and I don't really understand how how what the people who were talking about it were talking about. However, uh, let me tell you about this story. <laughs> it's about a boy and a girl and a boy's not a boy. No. Um, this is a story that I actually <laughs> sure. read as a novel, an expanded version of it. Um, I'm trying to remember the novel's name, but it's not coming to me. It, this, this story called, uh, the men in the walls by William 10. And the premise is, Oh, I'll just read you the first line here. Mankind. It's on, uh, Gutenberg, by the way. Oh, is it? Okay. I gotta, yes. I'm going to have to ask LibriVox to get it recorded because it's it's amazing. Mankind consisted of 128 people. The sheer population pressure of so vast a horde had long ago filled over a dozen burrows. <laughs> Bands of, of the male society occupied the outermost four of these interconnected corridors and patrolled it with their full strength, 23 young adult males in their prime of their courage and alertness. They were stationed there to take the first shock of any danger to mankind. They and their band captains and the youthful initiates who served them. So what, what it turns out is, uh, some time ago, Earth was invaded by aliens. Except invaded makes it sound like, uh, there was a war or something. Rather, what happened was aliens somehow showed up on Earth and they didn't really even notice that humans were there because they're vast. They're huge. They're massive. And humans now live basically as rats in walls, right, of the alien's house. And so they're pests. There's dangers out in the world, Um, you know, not cats exactly, but um, traps and uh, all sorts of monstrous things that you can't even perceive their height, right? So that change of magnitude, I guess, is what you're saying, Terrence? Um, yes, yeah, so, uh, doesn't well, only one way. Uh, yeah, it doesn't uh, only have to be in time, right? Yes, it's Can one I, way of making a, a difference, um, a, a sort of incommensurable difference, apparent. But mm-hmm. there are other ways. But the best, one of the best ways, is by changing the order of magnitude of of things. I'm going to send this uh, to the group chat because uh, it has Virgil Finlay illustrations, and I know Marissa will want to see those. And I found it on, it's on LibriVox. It's the book version. What? 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 No, really? Yes. Oh my God. Three hours and 38 minutes. Dude, podcast. That must be the book one. The man, the men in the walls? No, no, that's the, that's this. The men in the walls. The men in the, oh, yeah, the men in the walls. There are giant technologically superior aliens who have conquered Earth. That's the one. We could do that then. We can do it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't remember the, uh, uh, I think it's of mice and monsters or something like that. It's obviously a play of of mice and men. Uh, so, uh, the the expanded, which is not public domain, but um, William Tense, uh he's even way he's even way way less well known than uh, Frederick Pohl. I think Frederick Pohl sort of is much better known. But uh, yeah, I, I read that novel and I thought, oh my god, it's a great idea. Because it it get, it gives you that sense of yeah humans are going to be see I still think of everything that's happening in Frederick Pohl's Day Million as they're still totally human right the thing is is the circumstances have changed 
right? Yes, so, that's why it's pre-singularity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I like so, I don't know what it, I don't know what it'll mean when when they're past like like even if you're the only thing in the universe, right? Um, if you've got all these copies of everybody, um, when your copies are when when you die and your copies are still you know copulating with other copies, <laughs> I guess that that'll be post singularity. <laughs> I guess well, yes, because. Um, here they need to to meet each other. There's everything is is digital, but to to get things yeah, they go to a church going, almost, or, right? they they have to run into each other. Yeah, and um, there's a second point. Um, when they talk about they met at the encoding room. That's right. It's like a church, and they blushed. So I, city no, hall. I, I wonder what they did in the encoding room because after she has all his kisses and embraces and vice versa. So I I wonder if they carry all that information on them and it's just a, a formal exchange or if they have to do it to tape it. Uh, I mean it's hmm. understated and I I don't I don't think I don't think that that makes sense um because if they had to do it to tape it then they wouldn't there wouldn't be any variety, right? It would just be a, like a recording of what they had. But I think what they're doing is they're they're making a copy of themselves, digital copy. Right? That's what I fir- first thought. And then when I, when at the end, um, uh, she's got, um, all, um, well, I can't find it, but, but, all you know, like kids today, kids today, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from experience, you know, the young whippersnappers today, uh, they'll be like out in a field lying together, right? Um, looking at their phones lovingly and they're texting each other. And that's normal. Yes, but that's says normal she keeps his them. every gesture, mannerism, nuance, touch of hand, thrill of intercourse, passion of kiss. So I don't think they, maybe they always have all that sensory detail with them and they only exchange it with special, um, encounters. But, but they have friends Maybe too. Maybe right? they need not... to do hmm. uh, a little from a distance. They can just sort of wink, and the computer will extrapolate everything hmm. else uh, they're capable of doing. But it's it's quite um, detailed. Um, gesture, mannerism, nuance, touch of hand, thrill of intercourse, passion of kiss, but in math- symbolic mathematical form. So there seems to be a residue. That's what I'm saying. A, hmm. a, a residue of. Uh, of uh, flesh or, or body. That's why, and um, the next step would be they wouldn't even need to run into each other because mm-hmm. prob- probably a sort of supercomputer runs the society. It could just decide. Yeah. Um, I read yeah, like compatible. Supercomputer Tinder. I read, I read uh, I, this morning I was re- looking around and I found, um, I just typed in Day Million. I found somebody talking about when they lived in Seattle with a bunch of friends and they read this story um and everybody in the group was dating uh using okay cupid <laughs> and they were busy writing and th- it was sort of reminding them of yeah how you what's funny about this story is that it has a traditional hollywood meet cute right yeah where th- he, he's coming across the field and she trips or something yeah, um, she spurts out of the water and he's crossing the the, <laughs> the platform. Right. And in, in my version, she says, "Oh shit!" In uh-huh. um in your version, 
well, the one you said. Yeah. She says, oh, hell. Oh, interesting. And and there's, there's a couple of changes, and I saw another version where uh, the exhibitionist mentions has an open fly, and in the one you sent, uh, it's something different, open huh. clothes, I think. Huh. Yes, and at, at the end, um, the last sentence, balls, you say, it looks crazy to me, and in your version, it's uh, hell, I think. Huh. Huh. Rats. Wow. Rats, you say, instead of balls. Mm. So your oh, version so is... so much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to see what the original Which is better? says in Rogue. Balls. Balls is better. Yes, yeah. because it's it's this, this thing again of everything is virtual, and then suddenly you say something um, uh, or, uh, vulgar or, or familiar to bring you down again, mm-hmm. and then you go off into the virtual again. So it's um, just how much dose of um, uh, fleshiness do you need to keep your super um, uh, near-singularity story um, uh, enjoyable? So he just does a few of those. Um, hmm. where, uh, it's it's pretty other masterfully put stories. together. Um, it, yeah, I, it's, would, it's I would love to see the original together. Rogue um, and, and, and again, see what those letters, if there were letters uh, responding to it. Because reading those, uh, that's what I feel so privileged. And I talk about it a lot like I'm bragging. But it's actually more like I feel privileged to be able to look into a magazine and see what people were thinking. And see that, oh, all these stories I heard about that, well, that wasn't universally true, right? Mm. I, I see people like, I. yeah, I just, I don't know if I added you guys, but um, there was a story I found, I'd lost it that was from Weird Tales um, called uh, Pity Me by a girl named Bertha something. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, Bertha, I was 15 years old, and she wrote a story and submitted it to Weird Tales, and they published it in the letters column. And it's it's about a uh, necrophiliac old man who worked in a uh, undertaker's place or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> a 15-year-old wrote that? Yeah, a 15-year-old wow. girl, right? A 15-year-old girl wrote this story and submitted it to Weird Tales, and they published it in the letters column instead of paying her. Um, but the important part oh. is it's it, it's it's like, oh, that's really weird that a 15-year-old girl in 1928 would be permitted or consider and not find that, like, it's a story about a an old man who gets his jollies by having sex with dead bodies and he sees a beautiful he sees a beautiful spanish lady and when he's you know performing his duties uh, uh, she comes back to life and it freaks him out (laughs) (laughs) that's probably a word (laughs) yeah well that's the whole that's that's the funny part right um but the the title pity me is he's like can you imagine pity me reader pity me I, 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 I'm used to dead bodies. She came back to life. <laughs> and he has, he swoons when she gets up off the table and they find yeah, what her. Happened to Bertha? Exactly. It's like, what, how did, how could this be, right? How could, this does not fit with the reality that we're told about, you know, yeah, 1920s flappers. Okay. I got all that, but they're not, they're not, uh, you know, grandma and great grandma and great grandpa were swingers, is what I'm saying, mm. right? And well, now you would need legal um, authorization to 
probably something like that. Oh, God. Otherwise, you would have a, a lawsuit straight away. I, I don't know if there'd be a lawsuit, but they'd definitely be problematic. <laughs> there'd definitely be um, people losing their jobs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess because my first reaction there was like, a 15-year-old wrote that? But really, yeah. it should be like, they published a 15-year-old writing that? Because, yeah. of course, 15-year-olds are thinking that shit. Of course. You, you ever <laughs> met a 15-year-old? <laughs> that's uh, yeah. exactly what they're thinking And that's about. that's my point, is is that no matter where you go, you find humans, right? Uh, in time. And so, yeah, the fact that these people are super weird in this story, that that is comforting to me. And it's like, that's why, <laughs> because they're not really that weird. They're just like us, but their circumstances are different. So they act appropriately for the circumstances. And, and so, yeah, you, you can't, you can't throw down a new book with a bunch of fancy pronouns and say, look, Jesse, this is amazing and new. And I'm like, yeah, from 1966, it was pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. First time I read it in 1985, I was like, wow, this is a really interesting idea for a story. Well, there's always that big gap as well between what people are thinking and doing and talking about and writing mm-hmm. and then what publishing, mm-hmm. the publishing industry is actually putting out for mm-hmm. like the public. Like those, there's usually a really big gap between mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And it it is a, it is a, like, I don't think that the majority of people who are writing science fiction novels today grew up reading science fiction short stories. I think they grew up reading science fiction novels. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, they write novels, right? It's because they're, they're, I mean, we all sort of imit, like, I, I do this all the time. I, I get my students to read a story and then we take the vocab from it and write another story, right? Much shorter. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is whatever I've been reading recently will inform the plots. So it, we had that earlier with, um, Terrence struggling for a vocab word, right? Just to, for as an example, and what did he say? Peanut butter, right? Whatever you put in, <laughs> you get out. So it's we can prime ourselves with all sorts of things. But if you only prime yourself with with science fiction novels, um, you know you're going to get science fiction novels. So you have to read widely and find these weird little yeah. Or a lot of people and, yep. are just watching a lot of science fiction TV and movies now, and then they want to sure. write a novel, but they don't. Maybe they don't read that much and like um when i'm editing stuff i think i see a ton of and like the new drafts that are coming in are people writing novels as if it's a as if you're watching tv so like the camera oh, yeah. is like not you know panning in around things and it's like this it's like i'm watching a tv show this oh, i don't yeah. feel like i'm like there's in a, the scene there's a new phenomenon too there's some um, uh comics and this has been going for a while but it's much more obvious now comics that are written for adaptation to netflix like literally that's the purpose for it and i'm like i'm reading this one i'm like okay you got the the plot outline and the beats you want but your dialogue needs a lot of work and more importantly this story's stupid (laughs) but the (laughs) art's good and it's like beautiful glossy format but yeah, like they didn't think through certain things and they, huh. you know, they, they compress stuff, but it's designed to be written. Uh, it's designed to become and be adapted for a Netflix series because I don't know if you notice guys, but every time like there's a feature now on my Netflix anyways that tells you what, what's due this week and what's coming, you know, in two weeks or whatever. And there are so many shows that there's no way to keep track. <laughs> 
there's no way to keep track of like an, a tenth of them. You couldn't, you, if you started watching Netflix shows now, I don't think you could ever even get, like, even if they stopped producing in 10 years, I don't think you could catch up, uh, for another 50 mm. because there's just not enough time in the day to watch everything that they produce. And so that, that feeding that, that mill, right? That, that hunger mill that is the contest to try and get all, everybody's, all the com- competition for Netflix is gonna, is starting this, in fact, this month and November and next year, there's gonna be four or five new streaming services and they're all hungry for content. And Netflix is like, no, 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 we're gonna beat them by having more content. And hopefully some of it's gonna be good. And of course it's not. <laughs> But it's a pre, it's a way to sell your stuff before you, you can sell it, you know? You know, you, you say, look, I got this comic. It's really nice. Isn't it nice? And the executive spends two minutes looking at it because they have 40 other shows to buy that day. <laughs> and they flip through and they say, yep, that looks good. We could do that. Hmm. Right. And it's like, damn, that thing was not well written because it's being written for a certain market. And sometimes that works when you've got a story like Day Million written for a certain market. Give me your most innovative story. I hear this science fiction stuff's pretty interesting. <laughs> and he says, I can do that. Paul, he's a, he's a magazine editor. He know he was editor of, uh, by 66, he was editor of galaxy and worlds of if, or if worlds of science fiction, I'm not sure how, how the title of that goes. Um, and, uh, yeah, he knew what good science fiction editors were looking for or, magazine editors were looking for so there's there's uh there are ways of playing to the market and still being great and there are ways of playing to the perception of what's the market wants and being terrible yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess if they're if you're saying like these comics are like so they're written basically just to pitch i think that that's the idea yeah i I mean they they say netflix on the side some of them which is crazy like they and it's like this is not a netflix show yet and it's well it will be (laughs) they're like but there'll be be a whole team of people working on it later yeah yeah and the thing is is that's not necessarily a bad thing because you know with more and more people producing stuff there's theoretically more and more chances of good stuff being out there Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, there's also sort of a mill aspect to it. And, uh, if, if we think of what the reaction of the new wave is against, I, uh, one of the lines, I think it might be in the Wikipedia entry or somewhere I read this morning, um, might have been Aldris Budris or somebody was saying that there was a, the regular science fiction, uh, of the thirties and forties and I guess fifties, um, was, like a coin that, uh, or a monetary currency that had been debased because it, it was made up of rocket ships and, and, you know, planetary aliens and, you know, this and that, a bunch of tropes. And they'd just been used so much that they are all worn out and nobody wanted to spend any time with them. And so, yeah, you can take an idea like, um, telepathy, which is something that, uh, Campbell was into and you say, okay, but only one guy has it and it's not working for him anymore. Now what? Right. And then that you can, yeah, you know, it's not like rocket ships. I mean, Ray Bradbury sort of you would use that same vocabulary, right? Rocket ships and, uh, aliens and then 
just do his own thing with it. So he, he he's not new wave, but he never he, he never really fit into the uh, the previous you know Heinleinian style, uh, Asimovian style of galactic yeah. empires and space but, battles and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I understand it. Like I, I like definitions I had. And they are follow all of them either, but that's how I kind of understood it. Like how you just said it, where it becomes more about the person dealing with the all the shit going on around them. Mm-hmm. The more kind of like internal, one human being failing at whatever, being on this like, you know, there could still be a galactic war or big stuff going on, but it's more sort of internal or about their sex life on the ship mm. or you know like <laughs> taking drugs on the ship. Um, uh, uh, Terrence, did you, you, you read Scanners Live in the Vein? Yes. Would you describe that as pre-singularity or post-singularity? Uh, for me, it, it's pre-singularity because... Everything's pre-singularity, so that was my thinking. Okay, good. <laughs> That's Whoa. what I was thinking. Uh, Everything you, that we can read that we can understand. Yes, you can't do it, but Charles Strauss or I don't know who else tries to describe but you always need a, a human observer um to say um what's happening that he doesn't understand mm. like in the um ted chang story where the computers do all the science and you've got a, a human scientist just to hermeneutics of what they understand of uh, what the computers are, are producing or the artificial intelligences you, otherwise, you couldn't you couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to read the opening of Scanners Love and Vain because it's so good. Martel was angry. He did not. He did not even adjust his blood away from anger. He stamped across the room by judgment, not by sight. When he saw the table hit the floor, I could tell by the expression on Lucy's face that the table must have made a loud crash. He looked down to see if his leg were broken. It's weird. It was not. (laughs) Scanner to the core, he had to scan himself. The action was reflex, automatic. The inventory included his legs, abdomen. This is one of those things they do in science fiction or bad writing just in general. Some lady goes to the mirror and looks and she assesses her face. says, Mm. she had pouty lips and quite an attractive eyebrow, but her nose was far too big. (laughs) The action was reflex and automatic. The inventory included his legs, abdomen, chest box of instruments, hands, arms, face, and back with a mirror, with, with the mirror. Mirror is capitalized. Why? Only then did Martel go back to being angry. He talked with his voice, even though he knew that his wife hated its blare and preferred to have him write. I tell you, I must cranch. I have to cranch. It's my worry, isn't it? When Lucy answered, he saw only a part of her words as he read her lips. Darling, you're my husband. Write to, write to you, love you. Dangerous. Do it. Dangerous. Wait. He, f- he faced her, but put sound in his voice, letting the blare hurt her again. I tell you, I'm going to cranch. <laughs> like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, this is, scanners live in vain is, Set in the same universe. <laughs> as, yeah, I feel like it is. As um, uh, our story. Yeah. But the difference is we don't have that external narrator uh, telling us, you know, how, how what the hell's going on. We have to be that narrator for ourselves. 
right? Yeah, and it's more like a, I don't know, like classic 1950s, like the housewife domestic yeah. situation. Yeah, absolutely. And she stays on the Earth while he goes off to space and, and uh, does all the things that Lou does. Is it yeah. Do you know, Dawn, this- Dawn. Damien also reminded me a little bit of the, the other Cordelina Smith story. Um, I can't remember the name of it about the soul, the like the the sailing the soul or something, which has those two huh. lovers. Do you remember that one? Uh, no. It's really the only beautiful. one I can think of is Game of Cat and Dragon. I think is. I was remembering it when Terrence when you were saying that your wife felt sad reading the story because that. I that sailing of the soul or whatever it is it's one of the only like short science fiction stories that makes tears come to my mm. eyes like it's so beautiful and it's kind of got that thing of these two the lady who sailed the soul oh, that's it there yeah you go. yeah it kind of it reminds me a little bit of that too because she she's very far away from her lover on the ship and she also has like a representation of him like mm. it doesn't really say if it's data or if it's some kind of hallucination or what it is. But. I mean, just try and explain a photograph, right, to a Neanderthal. This is my girlfriend. <laughs> this is what she looks like when, when we, we went to the beach that time, right? Mm. I mean, uh, you see it all the time in movies where, you know, they're trying to indicate somebody's... I was watching a TV show or something last night and somebody picked up a photograph and stared at it for a couple hours or whatever it seemed like I was staring at the, well, it's our way of seeing telepathy, right? Uh, looking at the character doing that, we know what they're thinking. Um, well, now just imagine that photograph is, uh, is accessible to your inner eye and it's a perfect reproduction rather than, you know, the vagueness that is human memory. It's a perfect mm-hmm. reproduction of that exact scene, e- even with audio or, you know, those <laughs> iPhones got a new thing where, or maybe it's not even that new. You press the button, it captures a moment, right? Where somebody moves for half a second and there's a sound of the, them talking and it's, oh, I've captured a, that moment, right? <laughs> well, in a certain sense you have. Um, but it, what, what different, what difference does it make? Right? Everything is fantasy. It's all projection. Everything that we see out in the world is projection. And everything we hear coming in is projection in a certain sense. Right? There are things out in the world. Um, but sometimes they're like a monitor in front of me giving me the experience I'm playing. Well, not giving me the experience I'm playing a game. I, you know, giving me the experience of uh, fighting in a, a, a battle royale. <laughs> For a chicken dinner, right? And then there's another kind of fantasy is like, there's my girlfriend across the room and she's, she's smiling at me now, but later she's going to be angry when I tell her, right? That all is, uh, so what a story like this can do is say, wow, romantic relationships are not just, um, you know, getting married and maybe having kids. Romantic relationships can be as, uh, as strong as that, or they can be, a, you get married to some person and and spend lots of time with them, and they have lots of other girlfriends and or husbands and wives that they've got digital copies of and can spend time with. Um, how can you cheat on somebody <laughs> like that? Right? Pretty hard. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, those. If you've got a whole file of them in digital. That's right. Form. <laughs> so uh, in the story, Terrence, when they go to that um, place of copying, what's it called? The encoding room. The encoding room. 
when they go to the encoding room, it says their friends were there. Yes. Do you have that line? I'm just looking for it. Because I'm pretty sure that could mean either that they met at the encoding room with a couple of well-wishing friends apiece to cheer them on. Right. And while their identities were being taped and stored, they smiled and whispered to each other. Okay, and so all the jokes of their friends, but it could be like in um, are the friends 451, physically you, you don't there? Need the, or, or the cave, what the naked son? You don't need the friends physically present. Yeah, I, it, I don't know because he's a he's a deceptive star language. Man. He's a star man, right? He he wouldn't have friends on Earth very likely that just happen to be there on Wednesday, right? He's a star man. Right, he 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 travels to the stars. He's been in space for 187 years or near 200 years. It says, right. So the fact that he goes into space, he takes all his friends with him. I think, right. So are they like, are they holographically there, like Yoda and Obi Wan Kenobi for Luke? You know, when Luke shows up at at the party at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. And he looks around the room. There's Leia, and there's uh, Lando, and and of course Han Solo. And oh, look over there. There's Ben Kenobi. <laughs> and look, there's Yoda. Oh, Yoda died in this episode, or whatever. I can't well, remember that's which it. Episode Just it. how much, how much is virtual, and it's ambiguous. How much, um, how much uh, physical presence? I think they uh, physically remains. did have a meet cute. But those meet cutes uh, are, you know, anytime you, it, it's like uh, sometimes you go to uh, Craigslist or something like that. And it says, "I saw you on the bus. Uh, I gave you, yeah, I dropped my glasses. Um, uh, I didn't get your name, or I can't read your phone number. Are you looking for me?" Sort of those sad, you know. Oh, it could have been a romantic relationship. They had a moment there, right? Um, but every time you have one of those interactions, you can just like never lose them, right? You can always go back to them, and and yeah, if, if well, even if they're not into you, you can still have a digital copy, right? Your ex-wife never becomes your ex-wife because you were never really in the same way wifed, right? Because she's wifed to a whole bunch of other people too, and husbanded. So. so y- Basically, the only thing we could, we're almost sure of is the cute meat when she <laughs> yeah the meat cute arms. yeah exactly it's it's like you've got this t- totally programmed world and it's like um you know the cleaner men in um uh, uh, ancient Greek uh, atomic theory that the atoms are all fall down. And uh, it's a determinist world, mm-hmm. but every now and then there's a cleaner cleaner man, a, a swerve, mm-hmm. and um, uh, that is the origin of um, whatever non-determined freedom can exist. So the cleaner man is uh, when she sort of pops up and falls into his arms because he was taking a shortcut. That's right. Probably shouldn't. Maybe he was fine. <laughs> he was he probably should have <laughs> taken this shortcut. And that the, all the rest could be uh, virtual um, to nearly 100%. Mm-hmm. But uh, notice the one thing that also has to be true is, as they, he says, marry me, right? And she says, Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> right? So she's busy or they have to make an appointment, right? 
at that place. It's not like you can take your phone and you tap them together and now you exchanged contact info, right? It's a little more, he, he hasn't anticipated that much level. But on the other hand, story would be even shorter if <laughs> that's all that was required. Straight away. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, sometimes the story require, the, the requirements of the humans, uh, need for storytelling requires certain page count. <laughs> Right, it's pretty hard to have a a story that is only one sentence long. Although there is that, though, are two sentence long stories. They, they do what exist. What day is it? Uh, I think it's I think it's Wednesday. Maybe it's Tuesday. No, she says Wednesday, but um, is it Thursday? And he has oh, to wait a week, or yeah, they yeah, have yeah. to, or or is it um, Monday? I don't know. Or it seems funny that they should have the. The same. Well, that word day million is right in the title, right? So. Yes. There's, I mean, that's not the way we count, right? We don't count day million and one, day million and two. That's, that's to get a hyperbole. It Otherwise is. Otherwise you, yeah. it, He's, he's totally tweaking his, uh, audience's nose, right? He's not, he's not, he's, uh, I was gonna say his thumb is firmly planted in his cheek. It's his tongue. <laughs> <laughs> not his thumb. <laughs> So the minion makes it really far away, anything can happen, and the day says it's not so far as you may think. Mm. These things are, are, are coming faster with the exponential changes that have already begun. So in your lifetime, things are going to change a lot. Now, we, we need to have the sexy version of this. We call it Night Million. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> How angrily you recoil from the page. (laughs) (laughs) Self-revelatory. Well, I think we did pretty good for a story that's uh, only 15 minutes long. Yes. Let's see. How many words do you think it is? Oh, I could run a... I don't know, but it should be online as well. How many what? Words? Uh, I don't know. How do you... I can I've run got a, it online, but I don't know how to... Um, uh, copy, control A, control C, and then go to a website called Word Counter. I copy it all. Yep. Control A, control then, C. Go to a website called Word Counter. I think it's .net, but if you type in Word Counter as one word, it should come up. Yes. Word Counter. Count words and correct writing. Ah. Just paste it in there, and I use it all the time. Yes. Um, all these things we couldn't do before, or had to do by hand. 2,223 words. Wow, tiny. So that, that seems, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Let me see if I can do it on here. OCR you might text. be counting some spaces or... Some, uh, no, some... it's pretty good. It's It's pretty good. Um... Like if I do it from the one I've got rather than the online version? Yeah, 2,200. Yeah, let me see. A, C, word counter. .net. And the last one I did was a story called The Last Kiss. 
1759. Oh, it also tells you how long it is um, in speaking time. Yeah, 2,500 words is what it says here, but that includes the table of contents. Nine minutes reading time. And I think it's 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, 12 minutes of speaking time. Look at that. I don't know. What's the deal with the uh, sublimation of the urge to rape and the concurrent postponement of the, let's see, what, instinct? That's a very cynical view of relationships. Yeah, but I, I'm yeah, not sure. I'm not sure what it means. Uh, the, the second of the what? Instinct? Uh, it's showing his tile instinct. That can't be right. He's saying that whole, he's talking about that whole like dating sort of fast right of the man chasing and the woman wanting it but not oh, instinct to submit that's what it is yeah mm-hmm. so i i think that that chasing and like um i think that there's something to that but i i think it's kind of crass mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's no chasing in the story no for, no for the, the the dude bro who chases yeah, tail at the end? I think. Wait, so it's not this Freudian, the, the, the Freudian thing, which is still too animal. Hmm. Yeah, it really change. It really changes things uh, for women to not have to worry about reproduction. So this is mm-hmm. uh, like uh, I'm not gay, so I can't really say. But um, there was a funny clip about uh, Biden. Um, talking to well, who's the Vanderbilt who's on CNN? He's blonde. People think he's cute. He's got glasses. No idea. Ah, Jesus. Anderson Cooper. You know Anderson. Cooper? Oh, that dude. He's yeah, a yeah. Vanderbilt. Just so you know, he comes from billionaire stock. Um, <laughs> that's why he's on CNN. Billionaire DNA. <laughs> that's right, billionaire DNA. So there's a funny clip of Biden talking to him, and you know Biden's sort of losing his brain, control of his brain, or his brain's losing control of him, or whatever. And he says, um, he says, starts talking about Anderson Cooper about gay bathhouses, and um, all the sex, sex, sex uh, that was happening. And what's funny is Anderson Cooper is like very straight, straight. Uh, straight gay man, right? <laughs> Very straight. Um, and, uh, he says, <laughs> he says the classic Biden line. He says, gay bathhouses and sex, sex, sex. And, and Anderson Cooper's looking at him like he's crazy, right? Um, and he says, come on, man. <laughs> it's classic Biden line. You know what I'm talking about? And like, Anderson Cooper's like, yeah, I, I try not to advertise that part of my life. <laughs> but the thing is, is when I was, um, when I was uh, in university, one of my professors of philosophy, a really great, uh, one of my favorite uh, guys, um, he was a really interesting guy, but he, he was really involved in the uh, uh, civil liberties um, organizations in British Columbia and Canada. And the BC Civil Liberties Association, he's on the advisory board, they, they were always suing the border customs guys because they had a client called little sisters bookshop, which was basically gay and lesbian books and anything that was being imported into uh, Canada from like San Francisco 
was basically, you know, Canada wouldn't let it in because somebody at the border was saying, no, 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 you can't have this, right? Um, so they were always suing them. And he, and, and he would go on and on about how, um, you know, what it involved and is basically philosophy of law. In any case, I got like a, a, a lot of history about uh, the gay bathhouse phenomena in, in um, Toronto. And, uh, it, yeah, homosexual men don't need to worry about babies, right? <laughs> they don't, really don't need to worry about babies. I don't know that much about uh, homosexual women. Pretty sure they don't have to worry about babies, right? But homosexual men really don't need to worry about babies, right? So what, what do homosexual men do? They have as much sex as they want, right? Um, so it's almost like, imagine, if women don't ever need to worry about having babies, right? Then they will have as much sex as they want. And they'll have as many husbands as they want and as many boyfriends. And if they're all digital like that, well, that really does change the female psychology a hell of a lot. Mm -hmm. But in 1950 and 1966, where, you know, the pill's only been out for nine years at most more like five years more like three years really um that is not uh the case uh females are scarce right and to get one you have to basically go to a place where you're going to be protected right where they have the equipment or you can get, you can get the equipment <laughs> that you need um or you can uh marry somebody Right. And make sure you practice uh, some sort of limitation unless you're Catholic. Right. I don't know. It just really hmm. changes things. I think it's an interesting way to think of that. Um, that change of all those straight dudes seeing women get contraceptive and being like, you kind of all start acting like gay men. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me think. I don't understand anything anymore. <laughs> well, that, it makes me think if you're, if you're a person who's transitioning, changing from one gender to the other. And I, I don't know the numbers on this, but I believe, you know, I don't know the actual numbers, but I believe the number of men transitioning into women is much higher than the women transitioning into men. Right. Um, what will that do to their, uh, if, as setting aside all surgeries and such, what will that do to their sex drive? Is it going to make them more modest? like women or is it going to make them traditionally more modest like women or is it going to make them just as randy as uh as um you know gay bathhouse men from the 70s yeah. well and i think culture um has a lot of control over that because that that's some of the most like interesting essays and stuff i've read of people who have transitioned like that like like men now living in a woman's world and seeing how different straight men treat them and you know like and then they start modifying their behavior because mm. culture is now treating them differently. So it's like, it is really interesting. It's a lot of like how people are externally treating them, mm -hmm. which then affects their own psychology. Dude, uh, the whole, like the whole phenomenon of Saudi Arabia, right? It, it really, it's like an experiment in, in like, well, not, it's not even an experiment. It's sort of like retro, right? Cause if you look at, uh, the women in the, 
Middle Ages in Europe, they looked like the women in Saudi Arabia, basically, right? They're all veiled and uh, no hair is uncovered and no body part is uncovered because the, there are such concerns. There are such concerns. It's like we got to keep this all locked down. <laughs> I don't know how how true the whole chastity belt situation is, but there's something there's something going on there, and so that that chemical technology of uh, or biological technology of the pill, huge huge deal, can't be understated. Yeah, and maybe it's the most important uh, technological thing. Like yeah. electricity is 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 pretty interesting, but you can do a lot without electricity. Yeah, but. <laughs> Seriously, you can do a lot without electricity, but you can't yes. do. Uh, well, maybe. Yeah, but if every time you want to play with someone, you end up with a child. Yeah, yeah, then yeah. You can't do a lot. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. Day Million by Frederick Pohl. On this day I want to tell you about, which will be about 10,000 years from now, there were a boy, a girl, and a love story. Now, although I haven't said much so far, none of it is true. The boy was not what you and I would normally think of as a boy, because he was 187 years old. Nor was the girl a girl, for other reasons. And the love story did not entail that sublimation of the urge to rape and concurrent postponement of the instinct to submit, which we at present understand in such matters. You won't care much for this story if you don't grasp these facts at once. If, however, you will make the effort, you'll likely enough find it jam-packed, chock-full, and tip-top crammed with laughter, tears, and poignant sentiment which may, or may not, be worthwhile. The reason the girl was not a girl was that she was a boy. How angrily you recoil from the page. You say, who the hell wants to read about a pair of queers? Calm yourself. Here are no hot-breathing secrets of perversion for the coterie trade. In fact, if you were to see this girl, you would not guess that she was in any sense a boy. Breasts, too. Reproductive organs, Female. Hips, calipygian. Face, hairless. Supraorbital lobes, non-existent. You would term her female on sight. Although it is true that you might wonder just what species she was a female of, being confused by the tail, the silky pelt, and the gill slits behind each ear. Now you recoil again. Cripes, man, take my word for it. This is a sweet kid. And if you, as a normal male, spent as much as an hour in a room with her, you would bend heaven and earth to get her in the sack. Dora, we will call her that, 
Her name was Omicron Dibase 7 Group Totter Ut S Doradus 5314, the last part of which is a colour specification corresponding to a shade of green. Dora, I say, was feminine, charming and cute. I admit she doesn't sound that way. She was, as you might put it, a dancer. Her art involved qualities of intellection and expertise of a very high order, requiring both tremendous natural capacities and endless practice. It was performed in null gravity, and I can best describe it by saying that it was something like the performance of a contortionist and something like classical ballet, maybe resembling Danilova's dying swan. It was also pretty damned sexy, in a symbolic way, to be sure. But face it, most of the things we call sexy are symbolic, you know, except perhaps an exhibitionist's open clothing. On day million, when Dora danced, the people who saw her panted, and you would too. About this business of her being a boy, it didn't matter to her audiences that genetically she was a male. It wouldn't matter to you if you were among them, because you wouldn't know it. Not unless you took a biopsy cutting of her flesh and put it under an electron microscope to find the XY chromosome. And it didn't matter to them because they didn't care. Through techniques which are not only complex but haven't yet been discovered, these people were able to determine a great deal about the aptitudes and easements of babies quite a long time before they were born. At about the second horizon of cell division, to be exact, when the segmenting egg is becoming a free blastocyst, and then they naturally helped those aptitudes along. Wouldn't we? If we find a child with an aptitude for music, we give him a scholarship to Juilliard. If they found a child whose aptitudes were for being a woman, they made him one. As sex had long been dissociated from reproduction, this was relatively easy to do and caused no trouble, and no, or at least very little, comment. How much is very little? Oh, about as much as would be caused by our own tampering with divine will by filling a tooth. Less than would be caused by wearing a hearing aid. Does it still sound awful? Then look closely at the next busty babe you meet, and reflect that she may be a Dora. For adults who are genetically male, but somatically female, are far from unknown even in our own time. An accident of environment in the womb overwhelms the blueprints of heredity. The difference is that with us it happens only by accident, and we don't know about it except rarely after close study. Whereas the people of Day Million did it often, on purpose, because they wanted to. Well, that's enough to tell you about Dora. It would only confuse you to add that she was seven feet tall and smelled of peanut butter. Let us begin our story. On day million, Dora swam out of her house, entered a transportation tube, was sucked briskly to the surface in its flow of water, and ejected in its plume of spray to an elastic platform in front of her, uh, call it her rehearsal hall. Oh, hell, she cried in pretty confusion, reaching out to catch her balance and finding herself tumbled against a total stranger, whom we will call Don. They met cute. Don was on his way to have his legs renewed. Love was the farthest thing from his mind. But then 
absent-mindedly taking a shortcut across the landing platform for submarinites, and finding himself drenched, he discovered his arms full of the loveliest girl he had ever seen. He knew at once they were meant for each other. "'Will you marry me?' he asked. She said softly, "'Wednesday,' and the promise was like a caress. Don was tall, muscular, bronze, and exciting. His name was no more Don than Dora's was Dora, but the personal part of it was Adonis in tribute to his vibrant maleness, and so we will call him Don for short. His personality colour code in angstrom units was 5290, or only a few degrees bluer than Dora's 5314, a measure of what they had intuitively discovered at first sight, that they possessed many affinities of taste and interest. I despair of telling you exactly what it was that Don did for a living. I don't mean for the sake of making money. I mean for the sake of giving purpose and meaning to his life, to keep him from going off his nut with boredom, except to say that it involved a lot of travelling. He travelled in interstellar spaceships, in order to make a spaceship go really fast, about thirty-one male and seven genetically female human beings had to do certain things, and Don was one of the thirty-one. Actually, he contemplated options. This involved a lot of exposure to radiation flux, not so much from his own station in the propulsive system as in the spillover from the next stage, where a genetic female preferred selections and the subnuclear particles making the selections she preferred, demolished themselves in a shower of quanta. Well, you don't give a rat's ass for that. But it meant that Don had to be clad at all times in a skin of light, resilient, extremely strong copper-coloured metal. I have already mentioned this, but you probably thought I meant he was sunburned. More than that, he was a cybernetic man. Most of his ruder parts had been long since replaced with mechanisms of vastly more permanence and use. A cadmium centrifuge, not a heart, pumped his blood. His lungs moved only when he wanted to speak out loud, for a cascade of osmotic filters re-breathed oxygen out of his own wastes. In a way, he probably would have looked peculiar to a man from the twentieth century, with his glowing eyes and seven-fingered hands, but to himself, and of course to Dora, he looked mighty manly and grand. In the course of his voyages, Don had circled Proxima Centauri, Procyon, and the puzzling worlds of Myra Seti. He had carried agricultural templates to the planets of Canopus, and brought back warm, witty pets from the pale companion of Aldebaran. Blue-hot or red-cool, he had seen a thousand stars— and their ten thousand planets. He had, in fact, been travelling the star lanes, with only brief leaves on earth, for pushing two centuries. But you don't care about that either. It is people who make stories, not the circumstances they find themselves in, and you want to hear about these two people. Well, they made it. The great thing they had for each other grew and flowered and burst into fruition on Wednesday just as Dora had promised. They met at the encoding room, with a couple of well-wishing friends apiece to cheer them on, and while their identities were being taped and stored, they smiled and whispered to each other, 
and bore the jokes of their friends with blushing repartee. Then they exchanged their mathematical analogues and went away, Dora to her dwelling beneath the surface of the sea, and Don to his ship. It was an idyll, really. They lived happily ever after, or anyway, until they decided not to bother any more and died. Of course, they never set eyes on each other again. Oh, I can see you now, you eaters of charcoal broiled steak, scratching an incipient bunion with one hand and holding this story with the other while the stereo plays dandy or monk. You don't believe a word of it, do you? Not for one minute. People wouldn't live like that, you say, with a grunt as you get up to put fresh ice in a drink. And yet, there's Dora, hurrying back through the flushing commuter pipes toward her underwater home. She prefers it there, has had herself somatically altered to breathe the stuff. If I tell you with what sweet fulfilment she fits the recorded analogue of Don into the symbol manipulator, hooks herself in and turns herself on, if I try to tell you any of that, you will simply stare, or glare, and grumble, what the hell kind of love-making is this? And yet, I assure you, friend, I really do assure you, that Dora's ecstasies are as creamy and passionate as any of James Bond's lady spies, and one hell of a lot more so than anything you are going to find in real life. Go ahead! Glare and grumble. Dora doesn't care. If she thinks of you at all, her thirty times great-great-grandfather, she thinks you're a pretty primordial sort of brute. You are. Why, Dora is farther removed from you than you are from the Australopithecines of five thousand centuries ago. You could not swim a second in the strong currents of her life. You don't think progress goes in a straight line, do you? Do you recognize that it is an ascending, accelerating, maybe even exponential curve? It takes hell's own time to get started, but when it goes, it goes like a bomb. And you, you scotch-drinking steak-eater in your relaxercising chair, you've just barely lighted the primer cord of the fuse. What is it now, uh, the six or seven hundred thousandths day after Christ? Dora lives in day million, ten thousand years from now. Her body fats are polyunsaturated, like Crisco. Her waists are hemodialyzed out of her bloodstream while she sleeps. That means she doesn't have to go to the bathroom. On whim to pass a slow half-hour, she can command more energy than the entire nation of Portugal can spend today, and use it to launch a weekend satellite or remould a crater on the moon. She loves Don very much. She keeps his every gesture, mannerism, nuance, touch of hand, thrill of intercourse, passion of kiss, stored in symbolic mathematical form. And when she wants him, all she has to do is turn the machine on, and she has him. And Don, of course, has Dora. Adrift on a sponsum city a few hundred yards over her head, or orbiting Arcturus fifty light-years away, Don has only to command his own symbol manipulator to rescue Dora from the ferrite files and bring her to life for him. And there she is. And rapturously, tirelessly, 
they love all night. Not in the flesh, of course, but then his flesh has been extensively altered, and it wouldn't really be much fun. He doesn't need the flesh for pleasure. Genital organs feel nothing. Neither do hands or breasts or lips. They are only receptors, accepting and transmitting impulses. It is the brain that feels. It is the interpretation of those impulses that make agony or orgasm. And Don's symbol manipulator gives him the analogue of cuddling, the analogue of kissing, the analogue of wild, ardent hours with the eternal, exquisite and incorruptible analogue of Dora. Or Diane, or Sweet Rose, or Laughing Alicia. For to be sure, they have each of them exchanged analogues before, and will again. Rats, you say. It looks crazy to me. And you, with your aftershave lotion and your little red car, pushing papers across a desk all day and chasing tail all night. Tell me, just how the hell do you think you would look to Tiglath Pileser, or Attila the Hun? Attila the Hun.